I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is a really beautiful episode. My guest for today is Sarah Gottfried. And Sarah is a beautiful soul who is a social worker and also wrote a memoir about her experience with her eating disorder. And we just go in and we talk about it and it's really wonderful. So as I always say, let's just jump right in. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am so excited to welcome our new guest, Sarah Gottfried. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. Your narrative is really gripping, and I know it because you did write this incredible memoir that I would recommend to anybody, and it's called Full, A Memoir of Overcoming an Eating Disorder. And it was a really beautifully written book. Sarah, can you tell the listeners, other than that you're an author, a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So I work full-time as a school social worker, and I am also a eating disorder um, recovery advocate and somebody who's experienced it and has um, lived through it and who's sort of come out or has come out on this other side. And I really, um, I like to share my story with others, um, of course, to inspire, but also just to let people know that there are people around you who have been through it and who can, you know, be a support to you through things like that. Can you share a little bit about your story? Because you and I were talking before the recording started, and I I asked permission to, to say one thing, because even though it was written in your book, I always want to honor families, but it's such an important, it was such an, an important thing where we don't always pay attention like we think we are. And one of the things that went into your eating disorder, and let's be very clear, it was one, that was one thing out of many, many but it struck me at the beginning of the book when you talked about, you like literally talked about like, I came home from school, I kicked my sneakers off, threw my backpack down, went into the kitchen and was like, mom, I'm going to start a diet. And your mom was like, okay, here's the app that I use. And in your mind, you thought, oh, she didn't say no. She didn't say you don't need to. And that was just another piece of the puzzle that internalized in you. And I think sometimes we're, we're not fully present in life and, and big moments slip away. Am I, am I making sense? Yes. 100%. I, I want to start there. Share a little bit of your story. Yeah. So 
it was, there was this day after school, I was a sophomore at that time. And I had joined the track team in the fall. And so essentially, like, in, in my high school, if you didn't um, do a sport, then you had to take gym your junior or senior year. And I yeah, wanted nothing to do with that. Um, but I also, I didn't love track in the fall. So I was like, uh. so I thought, you know, what else can I do to get out of it? So as I was sort of contemplating that, I also was thinking like, there's a gym that just opened up and some of my friends were going like, all right, why don't I try and go to the gym and, you know, see what'll happen. And so then I sort of contemplated like, okay, well, if I'm not doing track, like I want to stay fit and in shape, whatever that meant then. And I was like, you know, maybe I could lose a few pounds or whatever it was. So I did, I went home that day and I remember feeling like kind of excited and empowered that I had like come up with this idea. And my mom's reaction it definitely surprised me when she was, you know, I got home and she was like, oh, like, well, I'm using this app. And I was like, oh, okay. And it surprised me in the sense that she didn't say you don't need to lose weight or you don't need to change your body. It was just like, oh, well, like do this. And it sort of sent this message through my head of like, well, I guess I do need to lose weight. And I think it's also important to preface that that year before I had gone to my pediatrician, my pediatrician had told me the weight I was at was a good weight to stay at. And I'm, you know, after it didn't really um, trigger me. I don't know if that's the right word, but it didn't really like perpetuate any thoughts when my doctor had said that. But looking back, I think that definitely played a role. I was like, it was a sophomore in high school. I was maybe, yeah, I was done like growing height wise, that my body was changed. Like there was still a lot of things changing, like, you know, anatomy wise and biology wise. And so I think that coupled with what my mom had said, it was like, okay, like, yeah, I guess I do need to like lose a little bit of weight and, you know, going to the gym was going to be that answer. I also want to point out, this is how pervasive the diet culture is in our society that, you know, it's not even a topic where, where somebody would sit down with their child and say, what, you know, what is happening? Like, why? Like, oh yeah, I have this app. You use that app as if you were like, you know, oh yeah, I'm going to CVS. Will you pick me up a, a birthday card? Like there, it's that nonchalant now in our world. It's almost expected. And like I said, that's why I said it was one tiny piece of the puzzle, because when you put together all the little pieces oh, a year ago, the doctor said I'm at a weight that I, I should stay at. Now my mom's not, you know, saying I shouldn't, you know, she's not saying, no, 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 no. So there's so many things that diet culture, we're like sometimes in a daze with it, you know, and, and just, anyway, I'm, I'm not sure I was going with that, but keep going. So. Yeah. And so I, you know, started going to the gym and what turned into, you know, a few pounds really quickly spiraled, I would say probably in the matter of like three months. Um, a lot had changed for me too. I had lost my period. Like there were a lot of signs that were very evident that what was happening was happening very fast and was very unhealthy. Um, you know, my clothes weren't fitting. And I, looking back now, I can see too, I was very tired. I was going to bed at like seven o'clock at night, you know, and just it was catching up with my body. Um, and I think 
too, back to my, the, my mom, that piece of things, in some ways, I feel like it was inevitable that it was going to happen because I grew up in a family that was very um, weight focused and physical body focused and um, food focused. And there was, there was just lots of comments, um, even, you know, extended family too. And I think, you know, my mom was a product of her environment and then I became a product of my environment. And so it's sort of like one of my goals as I think about myself now and at some, you know, someday wanting to be a mom and having kids, like how can I break that cycle and change it? I also want to say for anybody, but especially a teenager, it is such a confusing time and you're so vulnerable that one of the other things you talk about in the book was that the medical community and your dietitian, everybody treated you pretty much just like a diagnosis. Like you were no longer Sarah, the human with, with human suffering. How can we help support you? You were numbers on a chart. You were an actual meal plan that added to some of your rigidity thinking. And so share a little bit about what, what it was like for you. Yeah, I think it's, it's so interesting because eating disorders are a mental illness and they're treated as a very, in some ways, like very physical because it obviously, it can be for some people, it can be a physical illness as well. And it's like the mental illness goes away and they take out this piece that there's something like really like my thoughts, my brain, that's like preventing me from eating. And, and so, yes. So when I, the doctor had treated it very medically, very sterile and, you know, I had weekly appointments and they were very monotonous. You know, you go on the scale, you get your height, you do your pulse and they ask you, you know, the same three questions, you know, are you eating? Can you eat more? And what's really challenging? And it's like, my answer never changed. And then this dietitian that I had met initially, I thought this was going to be great because coincidentally at that time, I really wanted to go into nutrition in college. And I thought, oh, like, this will be great. I want to do this. I'm going to follow it. She's going to tell me what to do. It's going to be fine. And she showed me this meal plan. Then we got it on like that Sunday. And I was just like, I remember, I felt like just like an explosion went off in my brain. And I was like, oh my God, like how this is impossible. It seemed looking back, you know, it wasn't a lot, but it seemed like so much food that she was asking me to eat and so much to do. And she categorized it. And I was like, that is kind of what got me into this mess categorizing and removing foods and in in way she was doing bringing that back and so I didn't follow it I I mean I followed bits and pieces and I kind of made it my own sour twist on it to fit my rules and that was just even worse um and I remember going to her one day and we were, my family, we were going apple picking and it's something I love doing with my family. And I, I wrote about this in my book and I, for like the first time in a while, I had just felt like I was wearing jeans. I had like a sweater on, like I felt, I felt good and I hadn't felt that way in a long time. Um, and I remember walking in her office and the first thing she had said to me was just like, well, like, look at you, you're in like with a scarf and a vest and pants and it's like 60 degrees outside and I just remember being like wow 
Like you are really treating me physically, but you, you, you could care less about what's going on inside like my heart and my head. And, um, I very quickly became very defeated and I have a mindset, very like black and white thinking of like, okay, if I don't like this person or I don't feel this is working, I'm done. So I definitely started to disengage and she had threatened me a few times about like, well, you only need to go to the hospital if you don't do this. And that just made it worse for me. I was like, well, I'm definitely not listening to you now. And so at that point, we had sort of just pulled back and, you know, had said, we're just, you know, I mean, my, my mom and my mom had, you know, made the final decision of where we weren't going to see her anymore. Um, and I think it was interesting because she, this, this person came from a, an eating disorder inpatient unit. So it felt really interesting that this was the method that she was using and maybe it works for some people. It didn't work for me. And I think that's where it, is really problematic in the medical community is there's, they use a very one size fits all approach and it's just not applicable. Even as a social worker, I can't just go in and treat client A the same as I treat client B because it, they're, maybe they both struggle with anxiety, but it's two different people. This, this is where the relationship is critical between provider and client because everything that your dietitian did, like you said, on client B may have had really profound and positive effects. Like you have to like, you have to, you have to know people, you have to read their body language. And, you know, I joke with clients sometimes like, really, it's like 80 degrees out and look what you're wearing. I also say that though, when I know the client is in a space where they can tolerate it, I say it when I have a really strong relationship with the client and they know I care so much about them that I'm not saying it in a form of judgment. I, you know, I, I check in with them after like there's, so, and, and sometimes those are appropriate interventions. That's the thing. We're all unique. Just like you're saying, we're all unique. What works for one is not going to work for another. Like for some people, it needs to be the most prescribed meal plan that, and that works for some. I remember in your book, you said for you, it actually made things worse because I, I think it was your birthday or someone's birthday and you wanted to have a piece of cake and the cake size that your dietitian recommended or prescribed or whatever was not a lot. And you were like, but I want more. And so again, for some clients, they need it exactly. You, you have to, you have to be able to understand the heart and soul of somebody that you're working with. What, do, what are your thoughts about that? No, I a hundred percent agree. The cake one was really interesting because it's, it's something that I, I do think about sort of around the time of my birthday every year. And it was, we were in the store and I wanted this um, round like this circle cake. I loved like how they did the rosettes on it and the size she gave me was for a square cake. And I, it, it was just like, gosh, like I can't even enjoy my birthday. And I think something else that sometimes in the medical community is hard to understand. And at least this is how I felt that even though I was so sick and I was like refusing to eat, I really did deep down want to eat. 
I really did want to just like go out with friends and get pizza and do whatever we were doing afterwards. But I just couldn't, like, I just couldn't get over that hump. And I think sometimes it's really easy to think, well, they just don't want to get better. So I'm just going to tell them what to do. And for me, I, I did really want to get better. I just didn't know how to like work through my own thoughts. And so I think that's where it's so important. Like you can't just treat the physical piece of things. Like there was this, there was this mental and emotional piece that at the time I was not ready to work through either. Um, but I think just like just being cognizant of that too. Like we're, we are people at the end of the day, we hear exactly what you're saying. Well, it is about treating the whole person right? And not just the symptoms or the physical ailments. Because again, at the end of the day, there's nothing I would have wanted more when I was in my eating disorder than to not have an eating disorder. And looked, I would look at people walking down the street and like chatting and eating a bag of chips. And I'd be like, how do you do that? Do you, like, are you going to go home and cry? Because I would like, I just, I wanted it so badly but I, I didn't know how to get to the other side. And what it took for me was a therapist that was firm and compassionate because my eating disorder did need boundaries. My eating disorder, a hundred percent needed someone to say, nope, absolutely not. Like if I had a bag of chips, I would have then had like a box of laxatives. Like, I mean, like I needed someone to say, it doesn't work that way, Karen. So I needed boundaries, but I also needed it wrapped in compassion and curiosity and understanding and things like that. And that's what I feel like you you were craving for so long in the process. Yeah, 100%, 100%. I will say one part though, that like, I, I, I like fell in love with your parents in this book. I just, I'm so... I, I don't mean to sound creepy. I'm so in love with your parents and your parents made decisions that so many parents make because you don't want to see your child suffer. And I wanted to be like, no, don't do it. They didn't make you stay at the hospital. There was a time when you got admitted to the hospital and they were like, nope. And by the way, I don't know if this is the same time, but you were at one point like crying and screaming and saying, no, 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 I promise I'll eat. I promise to eat. That, that breaks a parent's heart. But I wanted to be like, no, don't take her out. Keep her there. Like I, I was screaming at the book. And then when they let you go to college, I was like, on the other side of the country, I was like, what's happening here? But as a parent, you want your, you want to provide normalcy if there's such a word for your child. You want to see them happy. You want to, you, you don't want to add more. And so it's, it's really tough being a parent through this. What, what are your thoughts about, and I hope your parents know, I mean, no disrespect to them at all. Oh my God. No, of course. It's, you know, we were definitely in a very um, difficult and challenging place for sure. Um, you know, there were months, there was a few months where my dad and I were really not speaking. We were just kind of like coexisting. And my mom and I, it was very much like a love-hate relationship. Like it was like a kind of like a tug of war. Like I knew I needed her, but at the same time, I was kind of like, just like, get away from me. And so there was a period of time, I think, where 
I was definitely like threatening, like, well, when I go to college, I'm never coming back. And if you do this, I'm not going to do this. So there was this like fear in their mind as well about like feeling like they were going to lose me sort of metaphorically and literally. And literally. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, if they, you know, so when they did go, I was admitted to the hospital, the emergency room one night and the doctors had said, like, it's a good idea for you to come in inpatient. And I remember like, like they were basing it off of my, um, heartbeat, um, because they were saying it was low. And I remember like staring at the screen and trying to like breathe faster and like, see if the number would go up. And it did go, like, I was trying to play around with it. And so, that night they did not send me because I was like, I'll just get better. I promise. I promise. Like I'll eat more, whatever you want. And I think deep down they knew that wasn't going to happen, but they were, it was such a traumatic period for all of us. And so I think they were just so scared and they just didn't know what to do. Um, and similarly, when I went initially had gone to college in California, um, they, you know, let me go and whatever. And literally the day after I moved in, I moved out. Um, and again, I think that was them fearing that they were going to lose me. They maybe in some ways they did believe, like I believed that if I was like in a totally different environment, things would get better. Um, and they just, they didn't. Um, and as I've talked to like my mom about it, even now, I think there is a lot of like guilt and, and and feeling like they could have done things to prevent it or could have been more firm in their actions about things. And I think I use this phrase a lot and I, as cliche as it is, it's like, until I was ready to get better and make a change, it wasn't going to happen. And so I, I, when we talk about it, I, I just say, I don't even, if you had sent me to the hospital earlier, or you didn't let me go to Cal, like, I think like who knows what would have happened, but it was nothing was going to change until I was ready, until I sort of hit that rock bottom. But I think it's very, very normal and, and common for parents to feel that way. I think I would feel the exact same way. I think you use the word traumatic, and that's actually a good descriptor. To see somebody you love in a hospital room, you know, hearing news that is upsetting that person tremendously as a parent you're like wait a minute what is happening there that is trauma that is trauma that's happening and we don't we decision making is not always so simple and again your parents did the best that they could with the information that they had and with the supports that they had or didn't have and so, and I sit with a lot of parents who are like, why didn't we, if we only did, I wish I'd done. And I'm like, but you didn't. And here you are now. So this is great. Let's just move forward. And there's no intention to harm. It's actually the opposite. But eating disorders have such a grip on people. Can you share with listeners a little bit about the time when you did go to college and how that the first time that you went to, went to Whittier, is that it? Was that it? Yep, Whittier, Whittier? Yep. So I, you know, we had gone out and visited the school. I thought like, yeah, this is going to be that magic quick fix. And so we flew out and I remember not having, like, I try and think back, like, how was I feeling at that moment? And it's, I think I just wasn't really feeling like anything. Like I was like, if it's happening, okay, great. 
So we moved in on move-in day. I remember definitely being anxious. Like my parents had moved me in. They left and I would text them like, I'm nervous. You know, it's okay. That's normal, whatever. And then we had this sort of like assembly, I guess you could call it to sort of like, oh, like, hooray. Like we have this new freshman class coming in. And I remember walking out to it and I, I felt, I don't even know how to describe it, it felt like a wave came over me and my whole affect changed. I felt really heavy and hot and then cold and nervous. My heart was racing. And for me, when I get that feeling, I know that things are not good. Like either I'm going to have a panic attack or maybe I already am having one, whatever it is. And I had texted my mom as we're walking out onto the stage and I'm like, I can't do this can't do this. And you know, she's like, what do you mean you can't do this? Like, what, what's going on? And rightfully so annoyed and, and mad and confused. And I remember definitely making some, some sort of like passive threats to sort of show how serious I was. I think I had definitely said like, well, I'm going to kill myself if I stay here. And um, we had talked after and they had calmed me down. And then the next morning I was like, I can't do this. And I had you know, my mom's like, well, then you need to go to the counseling center or whatever. So I'd gone to the counseling center, basically told him the same thing. And he was like, okay, I'm going to call your parents. They come. And he basically insinuated that I should go to like a hospital. Um, but he didn't really come out and say it. He's just like, well, there are options. And like, you can take some time off and come back and get some help. And, and, um, and that was, that was that. And so it was, a wake up call for me, for sure. Um, that's sort of when I feel like I hit my rock bottom of like, I'm, how am I going to get better? Like, what is going to happen to me? And my parents had, um, had sort of sat me down and we returned and, you know, we're pretty like Frank and we're just like, what are you going to do? Like, are you going to live here for the rest of your life? You want to do things? What are you going to do? You need to make a decision. Um, and that's when I sort of went back to Julie and really, you know, started to work on like the more physical piece of things. So I want to, I want to share about your relationship with Julie, because one of the things that you, we had just talked about is at the, initially you were being treated strictly from a medical model, strictly from a numbers, calorie intake, whatever, all of these things, very, very rigid. And you said the first time you walked in to meet Julie, she hugged you and hugged you as a person and was like, welcome. Or say a little bit about the relationship with Julie, because there was something about, I also want to say the timing was right for you. You were in the right headspace, but there was something about you just, just forgive me. One of the things you needed was someone to just hold all of it, not, and not a parent because parents can't, it's too much for a parent to hold, but someone to hold all of it and say, it's okay. Let's, let's just start from the beginning. Say a little bit about your relationship with her. Yeah. So Julie, I actually started seeing right when I turned 18. So it was probably maybe like four or five months before I initially had gone to Whittier. And so, um, but yeah, so I returned back to her when I got back from school and my my mom in sort of the heat of the moment with everything that happened at Whittier was like, well, you know, Julie's not even going to want to see you again. She's not going to trust you. And I remember feeling so devastated and I, 
so when I saw Julie that day, when I walked in and she, she just embraced me. And I think I should also preface too, my parents hugged me, but I think they were so afraid in all reality that they were going to like break me because I was just so unhealthy. And Julie just like looked at me, she smiled and she just hugged me. And it was like a long hug. And it was something I really needed. I needed that reassurance that she was going to be that constant person, no matter what happened other than my parents. And so, um, you know, I had sort of explained to Julie what had happened. And and I also told her what my mom had said. And, you know, she kind of just like looked at me. She had this look on her face and was just like, no, like, I'm here and we're going to get through this. And it was a very team-like approach. And, you know, something Julie had told me very early on when I first met her was, you know, I work for you. You're not my patient. You know, you're my client and we're following your lead. And I'm going to give you guidance, especially if I feel like we're getting into a very unsafe path. But, you know, it was very like, I'm going to very much, I'm going to follow you. And so when I got back and started seeing her, she definitely took a different approach for sure. She um, took a much more um, like, this is what you're going to do this week. And I want you to do it. And, you know, call me, text me if you need help. But um, like, this is what we're doing. And I think at that point, that was what I needed. And I was also more at a place where I could hear that. But Julie, yeah, there. I, she'll always have a very special place in my heart. I do feel like she saved me in so many ways. And she, she was the first person that treated me just as Sarah and, 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 and didn't see me for my eating disorder, but saw me in a very like dark, unhealthy, unsafe place. And I, you know, I wish there were more people like her. And, and interestingly enough, she's not a dietitian. She's, um, she's a nutritionist and, um, you know, she helps many people in all different situations health-wise too. And it, so it's just interesting. And um, and I feel very grateful that I found her and have her in my life. Well, one of the lines in your book said that she treated you like a pa- a person, not a patient. Not a patient yeah. Well, similar to how you said just a few minutes ago, not a client, but you know, it's not just the education or what credentials you have after your name that can make somebody a good provider. That's that's one piece of it. Training education obviously is, is important, but it's also one of the most sacred relationships between person and dietitian or nutritionist, person and therapist. You know, these are sacred, sacred relationships where we're asking people to go against their eating disorder and be vulnerable and honest and take risks and and challenges. And so it is it is very much about the therapeutic relationship. What is it like for you as a social worker? when somebody comes into your office and starts talking about body image or weight or i'm being teased because of my weight what what comes up for you does it trigger you does it make you more passionate and compassionate yeah i think it's it's funny because i do do outpatient therapy on the side and i um you know, had always had thought like, you know, it wouldn't be great for me to specialize in eating disorders, at least at this point in my life, but it's inevitable. 
And so I definitely have clients in my school setting and outpatient settings that, you know, might struggle with body image or disordered eating, whatever it may be. And the emotion that always runs through me is just feeling really um, sad and just like, oh, we're still dealing with this in the world and in society. And it's happening even younger ages. And I'm just, you know, it's just like now I hear elementary school kids with very like, I mean, all eating disorders are severe, but just like having a lot of challenges and being hospitalized at younger ages. And it's just like, what is going on? So sad, but also kind of like angry at just the situation. And like, why is this still happening? And what can we do? Um, Because it is a very, you know, it just permeates our culture. It's like become a part of our culture, unfortunately. Um, And so that's really the emotions that sort of get me. I think what I try and do is kind of help them come up with or think about qualities and characteristics that are really unique to them. And and what is sort of, yes, there's this physical piece of ourselves, but what's like really on the inside? I think I never want to dismiss those feelings of like how somebody feels physically because those are very real and that's how they feel. Um, But also sort of bring it back to like, well, who are you as a person? Because who you are physically isn't your whole person. And if your friends or whoever they are making fun of you for whatever, X, Y, and Z, then they're probably not your friends. And so I think just trying to bring it back to like, who are you on the inside without dismissing the other feelings? Because they're feelings, they're there, they're, you know, they're real for people. What do you feel was most challenging? Because we're talking about what helped, which is meeting a provider who treated you like a human being. Mm. What did you find was most challenging in the process, in the recovery process for you? So in the recovery process, what was most challenging was this um, mental and emotional piece of things. I, you know, came home from California and I worked with Julie and I, you know, got to a place where physically I was okay. Um, and then I, you know, stayed, I lived at home for undergrad. And it, when I went to grad school a few years ago, actually, I feel like I'd reached, I sort of continued on this sort of second phase of my recovery. And I was living on my own for the first time. I was with other people and adults and I was taking night classes and I was interning. Like it, life was just very busy. And it, and I had not been that busy in a very long time. And so I think that the most challenging piece was really seeing my body change physically and dealing with that mental and emotional sort of side effect of that. Maybe that's for me has been the harder part of recovery where I don't act on my feelings towards my body but then I inevitably have to deal with those feelings. And, you know, so I'm not going to go to the gym and to try and lose weight, or I'm not going to eat less, but then I'm stuck with these feelings of like, oh, like I really don't like myself today or whatever it may be. And I think that has been, and I think will be a challenge for me for a, for a long time as I work through that. You know, I, I want to also point out that, that you, you, like so many people had this magical thinking, which is, oh, as soon as I get to college in California, things are going to get better. 
And then, like you said, just a few minutes ago, what really healed you, one of the things, again, one of the many things was taking a step back from that like ideal image of what you think it's supposed to be, life is supposed to be like, and you lived at home, you went to a state school, but you were passionate and you found what you were passionate about. And this is where, again, there's this magical thinking that if it looks pretty, if it, if it has, you know, if it has, you know, a, a big reputation, then it's, it's going to make me feel better. Nope. Doesn't work that way. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I remember having a Spanish teacher in high school who had basically said that to us because she heard the class talking and, you know, kids, we do, you get very like, I don't want to go to this school. I want to go to this school and, you know, name brands, whatever it may be. And I ended up, so I went to Bridgewater State for my undergrad and I remember being very against going there in high school when I was applying, like, absolutely not. I'm not going 20 minutes from where I live. I'm not, you know, no, I'm not going to a state, like none of that. And then there I was, I ended up exactly like where I didn't want to go, but needed to go. I ended up having a great experience and situation and it was where I needed to be. And so I think it's hard because looking back, it might not have changed. I I think in some ways that's really like age norma normative to have those feelings, but I think it's important to just spread the message too to people in that situation. Like you will end up exactly where you need to be. And maybe you do end up at some school in your mind that's so grand and perfect. And then you transfer or whatever it may be, but you'll end up exactly where you're supposed to be. And, and I ended up exactly where I was supposed to be. If you pay attention, you will. If you listen to yourself, your inner self, and let it guide you, you will end up where you're supposed to be. And I think what we all have to be patient about is, is you might not find that until a little bit down the road after the first step of where you didn't think you needed to be, but am I making sense? Yes, 100%. Which again, is the antithesis of an eating disorder because the behaviors give instant gratification. And- life it, it life doesn't work that way that's not sustainable right there's one other thing that i want to point out and then i am so sad sarah but we are going to have to start coming to an end but i loved i often talk about whatever the traits that you used in your eating disorder if you use them in recovery it'll be amazing. It'll be spectacular. And you talked about what got you into your, some of the traits that got you into the eating disorder was rigidity, persistence, drive, all these things that you were like, I'm just going to use to keep my eating disorder going. And then when you used it in your recovery, you talked about how rigidity allowed you to follow the meal plan to a T. That's what you needed drive got you to where you finally ended up, which was recovery. It, it is, it is really, there's nothing about ourselves that need to be taken out and thrown away when we're trying to heal. It's just out of balance. And I loved that you wrote about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, and again, I, when I was with doctors and things, it was like, you need to change all these things. And so 
you know, that's who I was. That's who I am. I'm very honest with people. I'm type A. I like things in order. And it was like, I'm not going to change that, except not at 18. Like that's, it's just not going to change. And so it was like, well, how can I sort of spin this and show other people that I can still be this person, this very person that kind of got into this mess and be that person coming out of it. And so, yeah, you know, my rigidity with certain things, you know, at times to when I was, you know, working through that physical piece of recovery of like, well, nope, you need to eat. Like that's, that's part of it. Julie's gonna, you know, Julie might not be happy if you don't, um, you know, just that persistence and that drive when I have a goal and I really want to get there, I do it. And so when I had taken that semester off of school, you know, my goal was to start back up in January, but I needed to be at a certain place to do that. And so it was like, okay, that's my goal. Here are the steps. I'm checking off the boxes. And so, you know, I was able to use some of those qualities to, to sort of come out of it and, and, and use them in a more positive, adaptive way, I guess you could say, um, and that I still use today. I, you know, I don't like disappointing people or things. So I never wanted to go to an appointment with Julie and feel like, not that she was ever disappointed, but I never wanted to feel like I was making her disappointed. Um, yeah, and I think it's just, it's a good reminder that you are who you are and you don't have to, with an eating disorder, you're, you're changing yourself and manipulating your body and mind so much. And it's like, you don't have to keep changing yourself. You can be who you are in a healthier way. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Sarah, it has been such a pleasure. Is there anything before we end that I didn't ask you that you'd like to share to the, with listeners? No, I think we covered it. I'm, you know, I'm so happy to have this opportunity. I feel so grateful. Well, I'm very glad to have you on the show and it has been a pleasure. So thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next time. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast signup to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin, it is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening. <laughs>